Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have three brand new movies to review for you, but I'm going to tell you up front, there are two brand new movies that I did not review for the show because I have not seen them. The first one is Coming to America. This is the latest film with Eddie Murphy, Arsenio Hall, James Earl Jones, Tracy Morgan, Leslie Jones, and several other fine African-American actors. And the reason I'm not reviewing that movie is not because I don't want to, but because it is on Amazon Prime Video, and I do not have access to Amazon Prime Video yet. I'm still kind of on the fence as to whether or not to get onto or subscribe to Amazon Prime Video because I already subscribe to four other streaming platforms, and I'm considering getting a subscription to Paramount Plus, which actually just um, started... This week, it it began on March 4th, which was this past Thursday, 2021. So I don't know. I don't want to subscribe to all podcasting platforms. I've got the big ones, Netflix, Disney Plus, Hulu, and one more I can't remember. But anyway, uh, let's see. Where where was I? The other movie I... um, no came out on Friday, March 5th, but I have not reviewed it because I can't because I haven't seen it is Raya and the Last Dragon. This is a Disney film and it is available to view in theaters, which I'm not going to do because I have not gotten my COVID vaccine yet, so I'm going to stay away from theaters as much as much as that hurts until I get that vaccine, and for that matter, you should too. Now, Raya and the Last Dragon is on Disney+, Plus, to which I subscribe. However, it's part of the Disney Premium Plus package, which means that if you are a Disney Plus subscriber like I am, you have to pay an extra $20 to $30 to see it. And Disney Plus pulled this exact same stunt last year when they first released... Mulan, the live action remake of the classic 1998 Disney animated feature. And I was livid when Disney Plus did that, I guess because there's some money in this world Disney doesn't have. And Disney does not sponsor this show. I just say sort of matter of factly on what streaming platforms I've seen movies. So to hell with that. But I'm really livid that Disney Plus is charging extra about the same price as you'd buy this movie on 4K to watch it for now. Eventually, like the live-action remake of Mulan, Disney will release Ryan the Last Dragon on Disney+, Plus, just like all their other movies and TV shows, but it's going to be a couple of months. And I do realize... You know what? I don't realize anything. What I mean by that is I'm just really livid that... Movies are coming out in theaters despite the pandemic not, I mean, slowing down, but it's not officially over yet. But I'm even more livid about states that are lifting their mask mandates like Texas and Minnesota, excuse me, not Minnesota, Mississippi, both of which are run by Republican governors. 
and both of which are probably going to experience a spike in COVID cases sooner or later, probably sooner. But I guess that's another story for another time. But the takeaway here is I really want to see both Coming to America and Raya and the Last Dragon, but I did not see those this weekend. I know that Raya and the Last Dragon is out in theaters, but I'm urging you, if you have not had the COVID vaccine, please don't go out to a movie. And I'm saying this with a heavy heart because going to the movies is the best way, in my opinion, to see a movie. And I've seen almost all of my movies for the last year on streaming, almost none in theaters or in drive-ins. And the reason for that is because I want to stay safe. But the reason I prefer movie theaters is because I can shut off my phone and pay my undivided attention to the movie that's right in front of me. It's not as easy to do when I'm watching them at home, but it's the process to which I'm used to watching them by now. But anyway, so that's my explanation behind why I'm not going to see or why I'm not reviewing Coming to America or Raya and the Last Dragon. Maybe next week. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The first new movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Moxie. This is a movie that was released on Netflix on March 3rd, 2021. And it is a movie that takes place in high school, particularly a high school that's in the fictional town of Rockport, Oregon. Moxie is based on a book that was written by Jennifer Matthew in 2015, and it is about a 16-year-old high school girl who is played by Hadley Robinson, who, fed up with the sexist and toxic status quo at her high school, finds inspiration from her mother's rebellious past and anonymous, excuse me, anonymously publishes a zine that is a pamphlet or a magazine that sparks a school-wide coming-of-rage revolution. In other words, it is a magazine that prompts a number of various high school girls of all backgrounds, races, and creeds to come together to protest the, as I said, toxic and sexist status quo. So as I said previously, Hadley Rob, uh, Hadley Robinson is the star of the movie and she plays Vivian, who's raised by a single mother named Lisa, who's played in this movie by Amy Poehler. And she starts off her junior year of high school um unassumingly but then there's a confrontation that occurs between the popular jock Mitchell, who's played by Patrick Schwarzenegger, and a new girl by the name of Lucy, who's played by a lovely young actress by the name of Alicia Pasquale Pena. 
And basically, Mitchell begins to harass and bully Lucy enough so that she ultimately goes to the principal, who's known as Principal Shelley, who's played by Marsha Gay Harden, and complains about harassment, as she should. But Marsha Gay Harden's character is very out of touch and also denies Lucy's request to complain about sexual harassment because, according to her, and she says this to a student, it's going to equal a large amount of paperwork. And it seems like one of those things in this day and age, particularly in the Me Too movement and of people being woke, for better or for worse, that this kind of thing wouldn't happen in schools. But I wouldn't put it past school officials to kind of brush this sort of behavior under the rug. It is one of those things that's awful, but it seems a little too awful to be untrue. So having witnessed this, Vivian, who's not friends with Lucy yet, begins this zine, which she calls Moxie. And how she ended up coming up with the name Moxie is not particularly clear. But I believe Moxie is a slang term, which means cojones or chutzpah, or in the case of Guys, it means somebody who has balls. I guess you could figuratively <laughs> say that for women as well. But basically, moxie means audacity. <laughs> and I went through all those slang terms before I found one word you actually can find in Webster's Dictionary. So you're welcome. But when I heard the name moxie, I was immediately reminded of a certain soft drink that is only available in Maine. And it's bottled by uh, Pepsi, I think. And it's it's a soda that is very popular in Maine. I think it's only available in Maine, but it's not available anywhere else in the country. But Moxie was originally marketed as cough syrup. And if you've ever tasted a can of Moxie, like I have being a native Mainer, you know exactly why that is. So at first, I kind of thought to myself, this movie Moxie takes place in Maine because it does take place in a city named Rockport, which is a city in Maine. It's a very beautiful city, by the way. And also, the director of this movie and co-star, Amy Poehler, is from Massachusetts. So I kind of figured, maybe this is a movie that takes place in Maine, but it actually doesn't. You find out about more than halfway through the movie that... It takes place in Oregon. And also another thing that prohibits this movie from taking place in Maine is the fact that Vivian's best friend, Claudius, played by Lauren Tsai, is Southeast Asian. Lucy is black and Latina. She also has another friend named Amaya, played by Angelica Washington, who is black. She also has another friend named uh, Sydney, uh, excuse me, Kiara, who's played by Sydney Park, and that actress is part Southeast Asian and part African American. So it's a lot more diverse a crowd than you will probably ever find in the entire state of Maine. But again, that's another story for another time. So as this movie progressed, I actually did like the idea of all these women of all these backgrounds and colors coming together to just protest uh, silently or not the hierarchy uh, here in terms of 
popularity and also getting back at one kid, uh, Patrick Schwarzenegger's character, who really is a jerk. But if there's one thing you got to know about high school, it is high school sucks. And the more I watch movies like this, which are very true and particularly realistic to high school, the more it makes me not miss high school. And I've been out of high school for 19 years as of this coming June. And the more I get away from high school, the more I realize I do not miss it at all. And actually, this movie sort of rang true to me because the character of um, Vivian, uh, Hadley Robinson's character, publishes an anonymous publication. And that's actually something I did when I was a junior in high school, believe it or not. It wasn't so much a zine as in it had pictures, but it was something I printed out on Microsoft Word. I did. I wanted the work to get the attention. I didn't want any of the attention. And it was indeed very controversial. Some people who read it loved it. Other people who read it, particularly real names that I put in that, understandably hated it. But the one thing I did not expect was that people would find out it was me who, who wrote it. And I was very... Qu- I was very uh, cautious about covering my tracks. I made sure once I distributed this thing that no one saw that I did it and I succeeded. However, I underestimated how small my high school was. So by lunchtime, I was the number one suspect, even though I denied, denied, denied. And I did actually get in trouble with the principal. And ultimately my parents were called and yeah, (laughs) the only time in high school I ever got in trouble was for publishing my own school newspaper. So this rings true, and I wish I could have gotten away with being anonymous, but I I did certainly identify with somebody who has these ambitions to stick it to the man by way of publication. And it was actually very refreshing for a, for a movie that takes place in this age of blogs and social media to actually harness the power of the printed press with their own publication. I think that's really ballsy and something I really like to see in a movie. And overall, this group of girls, which is headed by the Lucy character and where other women of other different backgrounds eventually join is very inspiring. They're not anti-male, but they are anti-male chauvinist. And I think for that reason, a lot of people, especially women who see this film, are, are going to identify with them. And also, it it doesn't exclude the, the men from this <laughs> temporary revolution. There is one male protagonist in this film, whose name is Seth, who's played by a fine young actor named Nico Hiraga, who begins to have a relationship with Vivian, and they have really good chemistry together. I also really liked the chemistry between Hadley Robinson and Amy Poehler, who play mother and daughter. I thought their uh, interactions were realistic, and I also think when the tensions of high school begin to get to Vivian... The fallout between the two was particularly realistic, and I see that based on some personal experience, but also some observation from being at other high school friends' houses 
during particularly awkward situations. So I could really identify with some of this, even though I may not necessarily know what it's like to stick it to the uh, chauvinistic patriarchy. But I did enjoy this. I actually wish I could have read the book before I saw the movie, but my reasoning is that I did not know this was a book before I saw it on Netflix. I just knew that it was a Netflix film, a brand new one at that, and I got into it, and it was better than I actually expected it to be, and I especially loved the ending of the movie. So Moxie is a knockout in my book, and I did mention previously that it's directed by Amy Poehler, and Amy Poehler, of course, has had plenty of acting experience, as we all know, but in terms of directing, she's only directed one other feature film before this, and that was Wine Country, which came out in 2019, which is also a Netflix original, and that starred her, Maya Rudolph, Rachel Dratched, Anna Gasteyer, Tina Fey, and two other uh, female SNL writers whose names I can't uh, bring up right now. But that was probably a, a comfortable way to start with her as a director. But she's actually taking on a teen movie, and fortunately, it's she doesn't show any signs as a director of sophomore slump. It's a very poignant uh, teen movie, and... While there might be some comparisons here and there to a John Hughes film, and it might have been inspired even implicitly by John Hughes, it still stands well on its own as a really good teen film that adults probably won't thumb their noses at either. Back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Bigfoot Family. This is a CGI animated movie that I did not realize this when I first uh, saw it, but it is actually a sequel to a movie that's called Son of Bigfoot. And part of the reason why I may not have loved this movie may have been because I have not seen Son of Bigfoot. And that movie came out, Son of Bigfoot did, in 2017. It was released in theaters in 2D and 3D. But somehow, even though I lived in Boston at the time and saw almost every brand new movie that was released in theaters, this one went right under my radar. So I might have been a little lost because as I was watching this film, I was thinking, okay, this is a film about the son of Bigfoot, but why is Bigfoot a human being? Why is he in a relationship with a human woman who's not covered with hair or looks like Harry from Harry and the Hendersons? And why does he live in the suburbs? I guess that was all explained in the movie Son of Bigfoot, so for that reason... I might have been a little lost, but the movie actually does do a decent job about showing why um, 
basically the powers of the son of Bigfoot. And the son of Bigfoot, by the way, is a kid whose name is Adam, who is actually voiced by Jules Medcraft. And I believe this movie is a French film that they dubbed very well, by the way, into English, because the uh, I'm not actually finding anything about the uh, director in terms of where he's from, so I can't exactly say. But I do know that one of the voices of this kid, Adam, is also Kylian Truillard, which is obviously a French name. So, yeah, my sources here aren't telling me very much about the making of this film, which is kind of frustrating. But let me just fill you in on what Bigfoot Family is about. So, as I said, it is a sequel to the movie Son of Bigfoot, which came out in 2017. And the father is Bigfoot. And as I said, Bigfoot doesn't look exactly like Harry from Harry and the Hendersons, which is one of the first on-screen depictions of the legend that is Bigfoot. But Bigfoot in this movie looks kind of like Hugh Jackman covered in hair from his neck to his foot. But his face looks like a normal human. So anyway, this Bigfoot character, also known as Father, uses his new fame to fight against an Alaska oil company, but when he disappears, the son, Adam, the mother, who is human, a raccoon and a bear, head north to rescue him. So I guess they live south of Alaska. Truth is, this movie doesn't give you very much information, but it does tell you in very brief exposition in the very beginning, what powers Adam has as the son of Bigfoot. For example, he is not covered in hair like his father is, but maybe when he gets a little older, I guess he's around 10 years old, maybe. That's not, or maybe 12, because he's interested in girls. And not many boys are interested in girls at the age of 10, but, you know, I'm speculating here. So maybe he hasn't quite hit puberty yet, I don't exactly know, but as you might expect, he does have big feet, and when he takes his shoes off, he's able to run with his big feet probably as quickly as Carl Lewis or Michael Johnson, figuratively speaking, of course. He also has the ability to communicate with animals, so whereas other human beings can only hear the noises the animal animals make... Adam can actually communicate back and forth between, um, with animals. So that's one thing right there. And as you might expect, the animals here are comic relief. Although I wasn't really getting into the kind of humor that these, um, animals had. I thought the humor was a little predictable. They made a lot of, uh, bad puns especially a lot of bad animal puns. And also this movie, I think borrowed a lot thematically from the Incredibles, particularly where you have a son who can run very quickly, very much like the eldest son in the Incredibles. And I don't want to rip on this film for not being a Disney film. I did kind of like the idea of Sasquatch or Bigfoot being of a regular dad in the suburbs, but maybe I'm not going to rip on this movie too much because I haven't seen the original, but I really wished that Netflix had with its algorithm 
mentioned or shown that Bigfoot Family is indeed a sequel to a movie that was made three or four years ago. And maybe that's where I got lost. But again, I think when you hear of this this oil company being this big, bad oil company and the people who run the oil company seemingly trying to rule the world in, in more ways than one or in in less words than you in, in less explicit terms than you might expect. You kind of know where the movie is going to go. And the people who run the oil company are not exactly snidely whiplash in their demeanor, but they are like snidely whiplash in their intentions. And they make a really mind boggling (laughs) decision towards the end to blow up their entire oil rig, which seems in terms of a business perspective, like a bad, bad, bad idea. But I guess that sets in forth the Bigfoot family trying to stop these evil oil companies from (laughs) blowing up their own oil rig. So I think once the climax gets going, it's kind of predictable how it's going to end. I did actually like the action towards the end, but it took a very long time to get there. But the animation in the film is really, really good. And I think it actually holds up to some of uh, Disney's uh, CGI films because the the human characters, I don't think, are are quite as well animated. And it's kind of awkward the way the other human characters besides the Bigfoot family walk. But the animals are really well animated, probably to the level of Over the Hedge, which is a DreamWorks film, not a Disney film, but you know what I mean. And the... The wildlife, excuse me, the the woods in this film, particularly the Alaskan frontier, looks really well animated. And there is a climax which involves whitewater, uh, a whitewater river, and the the water in the movie looks incredible. So I do have to give this film a lot of credit for its superb animation with the exception of some of the ways the humans who aren't uh, Bigfoot or descendants of Bigfoot look. But again, I think the story could have been a little less predictable. Also, the intentions of the villains were stupid, in my opinion. Plus, I, I think it was very predictable the way it was about to end. But I didn't hate Bigfoot Family. I just maybe could have seen the original before I saw the sequel and maybe it would have been better, but it's still not the best animated film I've ever seen, which is why Bigfoot family gets my rating of a checkout. I do think that kids might like it. If I was a kid, I'd probably like it a little bit more than I ultimately did, but the dialogue needed to be stronger and the story needed to be a lot less predictable. Other than that, any other faults that I saw in Bigfoot Family were probably because I haven't seen the original film, Son of Bigfoot, and I might see that a little bit later, but it's unlikely I'll be reviewing for it for you on this show since it's a movie that's a couple of years old, and this show, I primarily focus on brand new films, but we'll see.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Biggie, I Got a Story to Tell. This is a Netflix original documentary that premiered on the platform on March 1st. And it is the a documentary that details the true story of Christopher Wallace, a.k.a. Biggie Smalls, a.k.a. The Notorious B.I.G., And this documentary features rare footage filmed by Christopher Wallace's best friend, Damien D-Rock Butler, and interviews with his closest friends and family, revealing a side of Biggie Smalls that the world never knew. And as I was watching this film, I was thinking, I don't know exactly if the story of Biggie Smalls here or the Notorious B.I.G. is one that I haven't seen or heard already. I was a big fan of the notorious B.I.G. when he was alive, and I'm still a big fan of his now. I did not have the album Ready to Die because I think my parents would have confiscated that album from me. But rest assured, I did see uh, Biggie Smalls all the time on MTV up until the point where he was assassinated. And the songs Big Papa and Juicy are some of the best rap songs ever released in the 90s. And I stand by that. But seeing this film, it did have a lot of really good interviews in it. For instance, um, Biggie's mother, uh, Valletta Wallace, who was born in Jamaica and moved to the Brooklyn borough of New York City in the late 60s, is interviewed here. Uh, Sean Combs, who went by the name Puffy, then Puff Daddy, then P. Diddy, then Diddy, then Diddy Dirty Money. And now, according to this documentary, he's back to being P. Diddy again. Oh my gosh, the guy's got to stop changing names. He's interviewed in the movie as well. And a number of other close associates with the Notorious B.I.G. are interviewed here as well. Some of the footage taken by Damien D. Rock Butler is revealing, but a lot of it kind of felt like the unseen footage you'd see on special edition DVDs. When DVDs first came out in the late nineties and people gradually moved from DVDs to, uh, excuse me, from VHS tapes to DVDs and most haven't looked back. There were a lot of, there was a lot of hype behind these special features and I was into special features as well, but eventually the novelty behind special features, especially unseen footage kind of wore off, especially when there were these bloated DVDs that had special features like in this cut of Lord of the Rings, watch unseen footage of Sir Ian McKellen, Elijah Wood, and Christopher Lee eating lunch. (laughs) And it eventually became to the point where at first You'd think, oh, wow, no one else has seen this footage besides the people who edited this. I got to see this. And then eventually, towards the end, you think, well, there's actually a reason that nobody has seen that footage because nobody really wants to see that footage. And that's kind of how I felt about this documentary. Again, I love the Notorious B.I.G.'s music. I always have, and I probably always will. And I'm one of these people who grew up or came of age in the 90s where the rap music that's coming out today, with the exception of maybe Cardi B or Megan Thee Stallion or some other artists in that 
uh, realm, the rap music doesn't really hold up to what it was in the 90s. And I think that the 90s was the golden age of hip-hop. As a matter of fact, I was watching a film years ago that was called Dope, and the kid, the, the, the star of the movie, was a, a kid who was born in the 90s and didn't remember the rap music when it came out, but he did say that the golden age of rap began with public enemies album. It takes a nation of millions to hold us down and ends with Jay Z's the blueprint. And that might actually be accurate, even though that that encompasses some of the eighties and the early aughts as well. it, It actually was at a point where rap music became less strictly party music and more, music that actually meant something to people. It had a message behind besides getting out to parties and having a good time. Of course there was music like that in the nineties, but it also became a lot more meaningful to a lot of other people. And of course, NWA's album straight out of Compton fits into that mold as well as Dr. Dre's the chronic Tupac's all eyes on me. And of course, Notorious B.I.G.'s album, Ready to Die, and maybe even Life After Death, which ironically was released posthumously about a month after Notorious B.I.G. was gunned down. By whom? The world still doesn't know. And both Tupac and Biggie's murders have still yet to have been solved. And that's really actually sad. But the interviews in this movie are... From people you might expect. Of course, it's great to hear from Valletta Wallace. And it's definitely not the first time you've heard Valletta Wallace be interviewed about her son and her legacy. But you hear from actually Biggie Small's grandmother, Gwendolyn Wallace, who is not only still alive, she's 96 years old. And it's it must have been really sad for her to hear that her grandson was gunned down at the age of 24. But Biggie Smalls' music meant and still means a lot to a lot of people, and it's it's certainly the albums that he released, even posthumously, still means a lot to a lot of people. Unfortunately, I wouldn't call this a great documentary because other than the interviews, I feel like the unseen footage wasn't quite that interesting. Some of it is literally of Biggie taking a nap, for instance. And what does that exactly tell me about Biggie's character? Nothing. There are some things in this documentary that I actually didn't know. For instance, uh, Christopher Wallace went by the stage name The Notorious B.I.G. and not Biggie Smalls because there was actually another artist who ironically was white and not heavyset who went by the name Biggie Smalls instead. And that actually um, was was very surprising to me, but I think it goes without saying that whenever you, m- you mention the name Biggie Smalls, you immediately think of the notorious B.I.G. But the rest of the footage I didn't think was particularly revealing. As I said, it's just him eating lunch or taking a nap. It wasn't all the footage. There was probably about 10% of it that was really interesting and told me something that I didn't know. I thought the interviews were solid, but the rest of that unseen footage, quote-unquote, 
didn't really do it for me, but I still enjoyed the documentary and it was great hearing some of that music that brought me back to the nineties. So Biggie, I got a story to tell is a checkout in my book and primarily the name of the documentary or the subtitle is I got a story to tell, but it's not exactly Biggie telling the story. It's not like the Tupac documentary that came out in 2003, where Tupac, even though he'd been dead for seven years, was actually narrating his own life story based on tapes that somebody found. That's really fascinating. And I was kind of expecting that sort of narrative from this documentary. So it's not a great documentary because of what it promised, but it's still good. And I still think it's worth a look. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into what is going to be premiering for the week of March 8th through March 12th, 2021. And I am focusing on streaming, not movies that are going to be released in theaters. And I am, of course, going to begin with Netflix. And on Monday, March 8th, there is a film premiere that, of a Netflix original film called Bombay Rose. And according to IMDb, Bombay Rose was released in 2019, and it is rated PG-13. It is actually a beautiful hand-painted animation created by award-winning animator uh, Jitan Jali Rao. So it's an Indian film. Amidst the bustle of a magnetic and multifaceted city, the budding love between two dreamers is tested by duty and religious divides. So Netflix is claiming this movie as a Netflix original, even though it, it, according to IMDb, came out in 2019. I hope it is the same movie. And I will probably be watching this film, and I will review it for you on next week's show, Primarily because not only do I love animated films, but I can certainly appreciate films that are uh, animated films that are made um, outside of the United States. And it is amazing what international animators can do without being in the confines of the Hollywood system. And in addition to Bombay Rose, the movie premiering on Netflix on Monday, March 8th, there's also a series that's called Bombay Begums. And I don't know if it's uh, related to the film. Let me see. Uh, Bombay Begums is actually a live-action movie that's also set in urban India. And it's, it's a series, not a movie. And it, it details a story about five women across generations who wrestle with desires, ethics, personal crises, and vulnerabilities to own their ambitions. I don't know if these this this movie and the series are related. 
And if they're not, then it is a coincidence, but good for Netflix to actually capitalize upon that coincidence. But I will see Bombay Rose, which hopefully is the animated film, and I'll let you know what I think on next, next week's show. On Tuesday, March 9th, on Netflix, there are two Netflix originals premiering, but they're both series. One of them is a limited series called The Houseboat, which I might see, and the other is a the third season of Starbeam. I'm not going to go through the descriptions of both of these because there are they are series, but if you're interested in checking them out, The Houseboat and Season 3 of Starbeam will be premiering on Netflix on Tuesday, March 9th. On Wednesday, March 10th, there are no films that are going to be premiering on Netflix, but there is a series that's called Dealer and another series called Marriage or Mortgage. Sounds interesting. I actually kind of wish that was a film because I would see it then. But there's a docuseries called Last Chance You, which I actually think is of uh, several um, subjects, but this one is basketball. So I think there's another Last Chance You, maybe about football, and another one about you know academics, just a way for um, college-bound kids to afford college, which is a very hot topic in this day and age. That's what I presume it's about, but... Last Chance You will be premiering on Netflix on Wednesday, March 10th. I probably won't be reviewing it because it is not a limited docuseries, but I'll let you know. On Thursday, March 11th, there is one film premiering that's a Netflix original. It's called Coven of Sisters. And I have to actually look this uh, movie up. And you, let's see. Um, IMDb is not telling me anything about it, but there is a movie... That's coming out also on that Thursday, which is called Block Island Sound. It was released in 2020 and is not a Netflix original, but it will be premiering on Netflix on Thursday, March uh, 11th. And Block Island Sound is about something lurking off the coast of Block Island, silently influencing the behavior of fisherman Tom Lynch. After suffering a series of violent outbursts, he unknowingly puts his family in grave danger. The movie stars Chris Sheffield, Michaela McManus, and Neville Archibald. I don't know if this is an American film. It's directed by Kevin and Matthew McManus. And my guess is Michaela McManus is their sister, maybe? I don't know. But Block Island Sound sounds like a very interesting film. And I will check that film out as well as Coven of Sisters. And (laughs) even though there's only so much time I have during the week, I will make an effort to watch those movies and review them for you on next week's show. But on Friday, March 12th, there are several um, Netflix originals that are going to be premiering. Only one of them is a film, and that film is called Paper Lives. I don't quite know what that movie's about, so let me look it up. Paper Lives is a foreign film, and it is about a young man named Mehmet who earns a living by collecting paper. His biggest supporter in his life is Tassin Baba. Mehmet's life takes a completely different turn when an eight-year-old boy named Ali enters his life, and Mehmet tries to reunite... Ali with his family. It's a movie that's directed by Ken Ulke, 
And Ken Olkay is actually from Istanbul. So my presumption is that this movie, which is called Paper Lives, uh, whose uh, real name is actually Ka- Kagikan Hayatlar, is a Turkish film. But don't take my word on that. But anyway, I was wrong when I said there's one film that's going to be premiering on Netflix as a, re- as a Netflix original on Friday, March 12th. The other film that's going to be premiering I know is an American film, and this one is called Yes Day. Yes Day is a film that stars Jennifer Garner and Edgar Ramirez as parents who generally say no to their kids. But Allison and Carlos decide to give their three kids a yes day where for 24 hours the kids make the rules. Interesting. (laughs) This sounds a lot like the movie Yes Man starring Jim Carrey, which was... A decent film, but I was watching it thinking Jim Carrey could do so much better than this film. And I've been right before, but yeah, I will see this film. After all, it is brand new. I don't exactly know if I'm going to enjoy it, but (laughs) I will uncross my arms and just tell you that this is one of the films I will be watching and reviewing for you on next week's show. So those are the Netflix originals for the week of March 8th through March 12th. Let me see what's going to be premiering on other streaming platforms. And let's uh, let's go with ones to which I subscribe. For instance, on March 12th, um, on Disney+, Plus, there are actually a few Disney originals that count as movies. Uh, there's one called Own the Room, O-W-N, The Room, um, which is a documentary. I'm not sure exactly what it's about, and I'm not getting any information on it right now, but it's one of the only Disney Plus originals that's going to be premiering on Friday, March 12th. What's also going to be premiering on the platform is Doc McStuffins, The Doc is In, which I don't know if that's a movie or not. I do know that Doc McStuffins is a popular Disney Junior uh, show. I don't know if that's a movie, but it's certainly not a Disney Plus original, or at least not according to the website that I'm looking at right now. Also premiering will be Dr. K's Exotic Animal ER, seasons one through eight. So that's the whole series. I've never heard of that show before. Doctor, excuse me, Dr. Oakley, Yukon Vet, uh, season seven is going to be uh, appearing on Disney Plus. Also, a documentary called Marvel Studios Assembled, The Making of WandaVision. That's a documentary that is, of course, related to the very popular TV series that takes place in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That's called WandaVision, which is about Scarlet Witch and her living in with Ultron in a Pleasantville-like world that is coming apart at the seams. Now I have not actually seen any episodes of WandaVision, but Disney plus is actually doing something relatively unprecedented in that it didn't release the entire series in one day. It actually releases one episode per week, which is probably driving a lot of MCU fans mad. As for me, I'm not watching it because I just haven't gotten around to watching it, but If I do get around to watching it, I'm watching it. I'm binging it. 
you know, because I like to binge uh, movies. But anyway, there is another show that's going to be premiering on Disney Plus on Friday, March 12th, and it's called Marvel Studios Legends Batch 2. Interesting. I'm not going to be reviewing that, but just letting you know. Also, Tim Burton's Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children will be appearing on Netflix on Friday, March 12th. And that is a very macabre and twisted movie, just like the books upon which they were based um, are. But I actually really enjoyed it. And Tim Burton does macabre and twisted very well. It's not going to be a movie I'm going to be reviewing for next week's show because I reviewed it when it came out five years ago. There's another movie I think that's going to be premiering that's called My Music Story Perfume. That's another one I'm going to skip because I don't know what it is and it's not a Disney Plus original. So moving on from Disney Plus, let me tell you what's going to be premiering on HBO Max, another streaming service to which I subscribe. So... On, there are actually a number of films that are premiering on today, Saturday, March 6th. All of the Rocky movies from the original Rocky from 1976 to Rocky Balboa from 2006 will be premiering on HBO, or making an appearance, I should say, on HBO Max. Also appearing are Lost Lost Resort and 12-Ounce Mouse Season 3. I can't tell you anything about those two. I know one's a series and one is presumably a movie, but it's not an HBO original. So I'll move on. On Monday, March 8th, there is a limited series finale called The Investigation, which I probably won't see. On Tuesday, March 12th on HBO Max, there's going to be a season two premiere of Ballmasters 9009. I don't even want to know what that is. And especially since it's on HBO, my guess is it might not be for kids. But there is actually a documentary that's going to be premiering on HBO Max that is an HBO original, and it's called COVID Diaries NYC, which I am pretty sure details uh, some New York City residents' struggles with COVID, either getting it or trying to avoid getting it. And New York City is one of the areas that got hit the hardest. And New York Governor Andrew Cuomo got a lot of praise for his handling of the COVID pandemic until very recently. Yeah, I'd never seen a politician go from so much praise to so much criticism in such a short amount of time. But that's going to be premiering. COVID Diaries NYC on Tuesday, March 9th. On Wednesday, March 10th, there is a program that I guess is a movie. It's not an HBO original, but it's called YOLO, like you only live once, Crystal Fantasy. It sounds very girly, so I'm not going to see it. On Thursday, March 11th, there are two HBO Max originals, One is called Generation, which is a series premiere, and the T in Generation is replaced by a plus sign. I'm not sure what that is or what generation it is depicting, but I'm not going to review it for you. But I'm just letting you know that it's there. There's another Max original that's called Tig and Seek Season 1B. Uh, Again, if you want to watch it and you have HBO Max, 
There it is. You're welcome. There is actually one program that's on HBO Max, which is not something that's owned by HBO Max, interestingly enough. It's um, the South Park vaccination special. And for some odd reason, uh, the park in South Park is is spelled P-A-R-Q. And the Q is capitalized. I don't I don't know why uh, the South Park guys styled South Park like that because they never had before. But the vaccination special, which I think premiered on Comedy Central a little while ago, is also available on HBO Max. I'm actually very surprised that HBO Max is streaming it and not Paramount Plus, which uh, Paramount is owned by Viacom which also owns Comedy Central as well as other cable networks like MTV and Nickelodeon and several others. And I'm surprised that, um, yeah, uh, think about think about what you're going to say. Okay, I'm surprised that Paramount Plus didn't pick that vaccination special up, or maybe they did. I don't know, but Paramount Plus is not a streaming service to which I subscribe yet, but it may be one to which I ultimately do subscribe, but we'll see. On Friday, March 12th, it doesn't look like any HBO or HBO Max originals are going to be appearing on the platform, but there is a 2021 film that's called Nuestras Madres, also known as Our Mothers. And I don't know what that's about, but I am looking it up right now. Nuestras Madres. According to IMDb, it's a 2019 film, but it's about Ernesto, who is a young anthropologist in Guatemala, and one day, while hearing the account of an old woman, he thinks he has found a lead that might guide him to his father, a uh, guerrero who went missing during the war. What war? I don't exactly know. It was one that... Guatemala was involved in, but that's all I know. That sounds like a very heavy film, but one that I might see and I might review for you for next week's show. Another movie that's going to be making an appearance on HBO Max is one that's called Isabel. And let me see if I can find anything on that. Uh, it doesn't look like I can. Oh, no, I can't. <laughs> it looked promising there, but I, I came up with a series that aired in 2011, which is probably not the movie or series that HBO Max is going to be premiering on Friday, March 12th. So I can't, I probably won't be reviewing it for you for next week's show. However, the only other thing that's going to be premiering on HBO Max on Friday, March 12th is uh, the season two premiere of Tigtone. My God, there are so many series out there. There's, there's almost too much TV to watch, which is all the more ironic because I I think most people don't watch broadcast TV anymore. I could be wrong about that, but eventually my prediction is that every TV network except for the five major networks, the news and sports networks, are going to all go black and they're going to release streaming networks instead. It's going to happen. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. 
I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.